Hey, welcome back to the Beautiful and Believable podcast. Drew Dodson here, and want to introduce our guest speaker for today, uh, Bree Mills from Australia. Uh, I heard Bree uh, said in a seminar with her and then heard her speak at one of the plenary sessions. Uh, she is uh, the senior associate pastor of an Anglican church in Australia and has done postgraduate study in missional leadership, a focus on congregational change. She might be especially interesting to you guys who are in a traditional Sunday-centric churches but wondering about new forms. She just gives us some great historical perspective and encouragement that uh, God has been doing these kind of fresh things uh through history, the, the current microchurch conversation is not something uh, brand new that's never happened before. And I found her talk uh, very enlightening, very encouraging. I hope you'll enjoy it, too. Uh, you'll find her uh, website uh, in, the, uh, in the show notes. Uh, check her out. Really, it became clear to me. I sat in a seminar with her. I knew in about uh, two minutes that this uh, woman really knows what she's talking about and is a, a, a wonderful leader and speaker. So enjoy Brie Mills from Australia as she gives us some perspective on what God has done in the Christian movements uh, in history. As you can tell, I'm not from around here. I'm Brie Mills. I do come from Melbourne. And uh, in 2012, in response to God's leading, I started out planting a microchurch. Initially, we did so under the radar as a bit of a pilot program to kind of test and see what God had for us. But as we started to see fruit from this community and as it multiplied, we brought the larger church into the process and began sharing stories with them about where we were seeing God at work in these spaces. No surprises to anyone who might have tried to launch microchurches out of an existing church, we hit some resistance. We hit some pretty strong resistance at times. So I began meeting with different groups around the church and sitting down with them, sharing the vision and just answering their questions. I just finished meeting with a group of older women when after supper, a lovely 80-plus-year-old uh, came up to me with a scone in her hand that she was having for supper, pointed her finger at me and say, you know, what you're doing isn't new. You need to read the story of Mary Sumner. And then she turned and left the room. And I was like, what? Okay, I was a bit puzzled, but I did. I actually went and researched Mary's story. And she was right. You see, I thought we were doing something new and innovative, and for our time and place, it was. But when I began reading Mary's story, I became convinced that God has done things like this before. And I want to put it to you today that God often uses small groups of Jesus followers, passionate about, about following him and serving the world, to renew his church throughout history, and I believe we can learn from their experiences. See, Mary Sumner was nobody in particular. She was born in 1828 uh, in England, and she was one of five siblings. And her earliest memory that she recalls is the death of one of her siblings. 
But the memory that she actually holds on to is the picture of her mother, who was a woman of faith who struggled with that, that intermingled um, just complexity of holding faith and grief together in those times. And it was a really formational uh, kind of moment for her. 20 years later, she's, she's married, she's having her own kids. And she records and she speaks about just how she was like, felt the weight of the pressure of motherhood and felt completely unprepared for the task. Now, I don't know if there's any other mothers in the room, but I, I smiled when I read that because I thought, good, it's not just me. She was living towards the end of the first industrial revolution and she was experiencing a world where, where things were changing very quickly. And she records it felt like family life was falling apart as people were forced to the cities to find work. Fast forward another 20 years, and her daughter gives birth to a child. And once again, she watches her daughter struggle with, with motherhood and, and the demands that are placed on her, trying to raise children of faith in this new and complex world, but in a world where women were still seen as property and they were divided by social classes. And there were so many women going it alone, struggling alone. And Mary Sumner was convicted of the need to do something to help these women. Now, she wasn't a superhero. She was a grandma. And when she first gathered a group of women in her lounge room, women of every different social class, to talk about what she felt God was asking her to do, she got so nervous that she couldn't speak. She had to send her husband in to send the women away. Now, most of us might give up at that point. But despite this wobbly start, a week later she gathers the women again and she shares her heart with them. Her heart to support women and families. Her heart to break down social barriers so that women of all classes can actually gather together and support one another. Her desire to see kids raised in the Christian faith despite the challenges of the world they lived in. See, she wanted to build villages around women and their families to support them, no matter their story or place in the world, and to point them to Jesus. She wanted to see women and families flourish. What began in that meeting was a movement of smaller communities that spread all over England. Women of all social classes meeting together in their homes, sharing faith and supporting one another to raise their children. They were intentionally places for mothers and many women report finding faith at these meetings. They even developed their own version, contextualised for motherhood, of the Anglican Church liturgy to use in their meetings. And that movement became known as Mother's Union. And I imagine some of you may even have heard of that. Now, it's not necessarily known for its missional side these days, but that's actually how it started, with a vision to reach and to support mothers in Jesus' name. And it had an influential impact on society. Mother's Union is the reason that the age of marriage got raised from 12 to 16. It improved the treatment of women. They advocated for the rights of women to vote. 
But what I find most interesting about Mary's story is she didn't do this alone. She's not the lone superhero in this story. She was one of four women who worked together to build a little hub in Winchester, London, that invested in the faith and development of women. One of the other women um, that, was, that was a part of this actually started small communities for young women who were coming into the city to work. So young girls as young as 8, 10, 12 would be sent into the cities to find work, often as domestic servants or in those sorts of spaces. And they were easy picking for criminals and for those who sought to abuse women. And she built these little communities around them. You may not know them now, but they were called girl-friendly societies. Again, another movement that went global. One was a, a well-known writer, Charlotte Mary, Charlotte Mary Young, who wrote on the issues around women and the Oxford movement. And the other was a lady named Ellen Joyce, who launched the English, United English Women's Emigration Association to provide a safe way for women to travel on their own. See, in the 1800s, they built this interconnected network of different communities serving different people, which sought to kind of holistically support women to live, work, and to follow Jesus in their time and place. Now, though these, they, through these communities, they must have seen tens of thousands of women come to faith over the years. Yes, the movements that began in the 1800s don't translate well into the 21st century. I can't see my daughter going to girl-friendly society. They were movements of God for their time and place. You see, the more I look into Christian history, the more I am convinced that God often uses these small groups of Jesus followers, passionate about following him and serving the world as the starting place for renewal and revival. See, these women... They were actually influenced by another movement of smaller communities that began 50 to 100 years before them. And this one you might be more familiar with. There were communities started by a guy called John Wesley. But Wesley, in himself, he stood in a particular time of history that God had been preparing him for for the years before him. 200 years before Wesley, Martin Luther spoke of the need of something called Ecclesiola in Ecclesia, small churches within the church. Now, in the 1970s, some people picked up this idea to try and justify the small group movement that we've seen kind of run through our churches. But what Luther was advocating for was so much more than the traditional evangelical Bible study. Luther dreamed of a community that met in houses in a short and simple fashion that helped people shape their lives around Jesus and serve their communities. Throughout history, a few others did the same sort of things, but this idea really picked up traction with a guy called Count Zinzendorf. Now, he opened up a big kind of property that he had to a group of Moravians that were fleeing persecution who set up camp at his place. And these Moravians began to, began to organise themselves for mission, and they did so using small groups called bands. These small communities combined the aspects of fellowship and sharing, mutual correction, confession and prayer, and an urgent sense of mission to send the gospel to the world and bring renewal to Christians. Sound familiar? 
Seeing the Moravians really helped to solidify this connection between small groups and missions. But for the first five years of them set up at this camp, they were an absolute mess. There was dissension, there was bickering. They'd set up these groups for mission, but they weren't going anywhere. And then on May the 12th, 1727, these groups committed to pray, to pray and labour for revival. And it became known as the Golden Summer because when they did that, when they prayed and they laboured for revival, both personally and into their community, God showed up. And there was an amazing revival that took place. From there, these small groups grew and they multiplied all the way across Germany. And that's when John Wesley steps in and he visits the Moravians in the middle of this revival in Germany. He saw what God was doing. And then he did what every other Christian leader often does. He saw what God was doing over there and he picked it up and thought, I'll do that in London, just like they did. But of course, Luther wasn't a Moravian. He was an Anglican, actually. And the context of London was quite different to Germany. And so the first community he started, the Fetter Lane Society, was full of conflict and issues. And so in the end, um, Wesley left and he started a new contextualised version in, uh, just down the road called the Foundry Society. Now, that was like his test case for Christian missions and, and small Christian communities. It was a little community that was focused both on internally shaping people like Jesus and also externally seeking to love and serve particularly the poor around them. Now, as this community was starting to develop, Wesley was called by another minister to come and preach to some English miners that were rioting in Bristol. So there was this one wild guy called Whitfield who was preaching outdoors, which was then, at that time, basically would get you thrown out of the church if you're preaching outside of a, a church building. But Wesley went up and joined him because he saw that God was doing things in that space. But where Whitfield was happy for people just to hear the word preached and, and then walk away, Wesley was not happy with that. Wesley wanted to see people formed in the image of Christ, to grow as disciples of Christ. And he knew that preaching alone wasn't going to do that. So he lent on his experience from the Moravian church and he started these structures of bands, classes, and eventually societies to disciple the community. Now, his societies would have been similar to what we would call a congregation. But he didn't start with societies. He didn't plant societies and then form them into smaller groups. He actually worked the other way around. The primary entry point and the key place of belonging was a community where everyone knew each other and the one and others of the gospel could be lived out. These class meetings served both a, a discipleship and an evangelistic function. And it was these class meetings that multiplied the Methodist revival. We know the Methodist revival, if you've done any church history, was wild throughout England. Theologian Howard Snyder suggests that it's this system of smaller communities that sustained the Methodist revival over many decades. He says this, Methodism was not one continuous revival flame. The movement was a whole series of sporadic and often geographically localised revivals. 
rather than one continuous wave of revival that swept the country. Without the class meeting, the scattered fires of renewal would have burned out long before the movement could have made a deep impact on the nation. Some pretty powerful words. And what we see in Wesley's story of renewal is small communities seeking to follow Jesus, engaging in the needs of their local community, and God bringing about renewal and revival as these communities multiplied. Leonard Sweet suggests this. Wesley's greatest achievement was not that he sang his own song, but that he rediscovered God's song and sang it afresh over a newly emerging landscape. He recognised the pattern of God at work in disciple-making and missions for his smaller communities, and he contextualised it for his time and place. See, I believe that God is doing something with the microchurch movement. We are seeing interest and engagement in Australia like I have not seen in the 10 years I've been involved in microchurches. The resistance that we encountered initially is, is almost completely gone. And I believe God is setting up an opportunity for us here in Australia and maybe for you too. So my question is this. How can we learn from the past to step more wisely into the future that God is laying before us. We are going to make mistakes, absolutely. But let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. Like we're a room full of innovators and pioneers. Surely we can manage to make new mistakes and learn from those, right? So let's learn from the past. And there's three things today that I want to take hold of that I think we can learn from these stories of, of microchurch movements or smaller communities that multiplied throughout history. The first one is, I believe we must seek humble unity with the institutional church. As much as it's possible with us to seek unity and partnership, but not uniformity. Most revival movements have tended to experience kind of one of three responses when they've interacted with the institutional church throughout history. The first response is they're forced out. They're actually segregated and pushed out by the institutional church. In the end, that's where Methodism went after Wesley died. The second one is they die out. They are suffocated. They are starved of resources and needs so that they die and they no longer serve as a threat to the institutional church. And the third one is they sell out and they become accommodated to the institutional church by giving a, a, a recognised but kind of limited space over in the corner of the structure. And that's what happened to, to Mother's Union and Girls Friendly Society. But I actually believe Wesley demonstrated another option. See, he lived on the edge of the Anglican church. For a long time, he wasn't even allowed to preach in an Anglican church. Yet he stayed committed to the Anglican church even when they rejected him. His heart's desire was to see what he was doing with these smaller communities spark a revival in the whole Anglican church of London. See, Wesley loved God's church. He loved the church. And he wanted to see the people of God shaped into the image of Jesus. That was his heart. He never desired separation. The Methodist church didn't separate till after he died. 
And I actually believe Wesley demonstrated that it's possible, that it's possible to hold together that viral network of discipling communities alongside a church in its more institutional form. Even alongside his own kind of larger societies and congregations that he formed. And my experience suggests something similar. See, I believe if the microchurch movement becomes a separatist movement, then like many other revival movements, it will die, starved of resources, wisdom, and support from the broader church. But I believe microchurches can actually learn from the global church in all its forms. But I believe microchurches also have much to offer the global church in terms of missional learning. And I believe that God has used and will continue to use both communities globally, as he has done throughout history. He's still doing throughout history. If you look at the microchurch movements that are running through, through China and India, see, God can and has used churches of all shapes and sizes, but history reminds us that God has also used the small church quite powerfully at times. Microchurches in their time and place not just to grow in and of themselves, but to bring about renewal and revival in the broader church. And as a church, I think sometimes we forget the role that these smaller communities have played. And it's time to remember the place of the small in the church. So as we step into the future, we need to seek humble unity with the global church. Unity, but not uniformity. Second, we need to continue seeking to become more like Jesus. See, every movement throughout history, every revival throughout history begins when the church seeks kind of greater conformity to Jesus. Luther knew it. Mary Sumner knew it. The Moravians and Wesley demonstrated. They lived it. Movements begin with small communities who recognize their need to be reformed in the image of Christ and then begin to contend for their community. I know it's part of the underground story. It's part of my story. I'd been working in um, youth ministry and doing some missional community stuff in youth ministry for about 10 years when on a day of prayer and fasting, God called me out of youth ministry. And I was devastated because I was good at youth ministry. I was known for being good at youth, youth ministry. And God spent the next six months untangling my identity from being that youth pastor and refinding it in being a child of Jesus. And it was after that, after that process, that he called me to step in and to start leading microchurches. Movements start when small communities gather and seek to become more like Jesus. And as God shapes their lives and hearts, they begin contending for the people around them in their networks and neighbourhoods, and we see renewal and movement. God is the one who brings renewal. We don't need to strive for movement. We need to strive to look more like Jesus, to live more like Jesus, to speak more like Jesus. We need to contend for our communities. If God desires to bring revival and, and multiplication, that's his call. But the starting place for us and for the church is always seeking to look more like Jesus. And finally, we must seek contextualised expressions. So often as Christians, we are tempted to pick up somebody else's contextualised expression and use it in our neighbourhood, 
It's what Wesley did. He picked up what they were doing in Germany and shoved it in London, and it didn't work. The gospel, microchurches, must be contextualized. When we first started microchurches, we picked up a model from a lower socioeconomic area in England and planted it in a higher socioeconomic area in Melbourne, Australia. Guess what? It didn't really work. It didn't really take. We had a lot of conflict, and we learned the hard way that we needed to contextualise in these communities, to take hold of the key principles and to hold on to those, but to respond afresh to what was God was calling us to in the context he had placed us. Wesley's greatest achievement was not that he sang his own song, but that he rediscovered God's song and sang it afresh over a newly emerging landscape. Wesley and his team sung God's song over London. Mary Sumner and her band of women sung God's song over Winchester and, and over the world. My team sung God's song over Glen Waverley, Victoria. Where is God asking you to sing his song? What will it look like in that place? I believe that it will look like being in humble unity with the church, the global church. Unity, but not uniformity. It'll look like continually surrendering our lives to the transforming work of Jesus. And it'll look like seeking to partner specifically with God for what he is doing in the place that he has put us. So I want to give you some time in your tables uh, to reflect on this and to have a discussion around your table. What is it? What is it that you need to take away for your context from the history that you've heard this morning? Hey, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, good stuff, right? Uh, check out Bree and what she's up to uh, at her website, briemills.com.au for Australia. She is down there in Oz. And uh, give some thought to what she had to say. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear any comments or questions that her talk may have generated. Uh, until then, uh, this is Drew Dodson and much love. Yeah.